The following message is made available for you by Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information, visit us online at www.emmanuelmora.com. All right, well, financial institutions have always found ways to adapt to the times. Uh, before the advent of the internet, uh, you, you know what? I'm just going to switch to this. Can I, can I do that, Tim? Um, it might be a little bit different, but... Financial institutions will always find a way to adapt to the times. Uh, before the advent of the internet, uh, you were confined to essentially a local bank. You wrote uh, checks, you balanced your account based on uh, those uh, that checkbook, and you waited until in the mail uh, of your transactions to make sure that your balances if someone doesn't want to hear this message today probably the banks if I'm talking about banking um, but the internet has really uh, has come completely taken over our lives and it's revolutionized the way that we do banking. Uh, very few people write checks anymore. And uh, we sort of get uh, annoyed at the people at the grocery store that do because, you know, it's taking so long to, to wait for them to write this. Uh, if you're doing bookkeeping, you can just log right into your bank account online. You don't have to wait till a statement comes anymore. Uh, if your credit card information is stolen or used, you're notified almost immediately you get a call and you can cancel that card. You're no longer confined to a local bank anymore. Uh, people in places like Mora can have their, their accounts in Cambridge or Minneapolis or even Los Angeles if they, if they really want to without any restriction. And the internet has also given rise to something called internet-only banks. These are banks that have absolutely no brick-and-mortar store. They only exist online. Now, before you start getting uh, a little bit nervous uh, about whether or not these things are safe or legitimate, uh, they are. They are FDIC-backed, and some of them have unique benefits that uh, you wouldn't find in traditional banks. And one of them is something called a high-yield savings account. Uh, because there's no overhead of a traditional bank, they can offer higher interest rates on your, your checking account. For, so, for example, if you're holding $5,000 in savings at a normal bank and, and the, the uh, percentage rate uh, was an average 0.1%, that's, you know, 0 0.001, uh, after a year, you might get a return of, of $5. Uh, but if you have a high-yield savings account that earns 2%, you might get $100 of interest for a year. Now, $100 really isn't that much money, but when you compare $100 to $5, uh, it's significantly more. And now I probably have your attention for two different reasons. First, you've never heard uh, of a internet-only bank and you're trying to make sense of it. And two, money is very important to you and you're always wanting to know how to get the most value for your dollar. Uh, your money is an important topic and uh, there there's something far more important than the topic of money and your financial future. And the truth is, is that many of us have not invested very well spiritually. The, the little that we have, we've put into traditional spiritual accounts that yield very little in this life and in the next. We don't take much stock in what it means to grow spiritually and so we put a little bit into this spiritual account and a 
and a lot into the other accounts in life. And today we're finishing up this first letter of Timothy. And we've been in this letter since the first week in August. Uh, this is the 18th message that we have gone through in this particular letter. And if there's one thing that we're reminded of again and again, it's that we need to be invested in the truth. We need to have a, down, uh, a, a deposit down on the gospel and what it means. We need to be invested in a high-yield spiritual account. And Paul closes out this letter to help us understand the importance of finding and depositing into this high-yield spiritual account to the gospel. So let's look at the text, and then we'll break down three ways in which we, uh, we invest well. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So as we close out 1 Timothy, let me encourage you to invest well. We can do that in three ways. The first is that we need to trust in true security. Trust in true security. Uh, Andrew Carnegie uh, became one of the wealthiest men in the world with his company, the Carnegie Steel Company, which later became the U.S. Steel Company as we know it now. Uh, it became one of the most profitable companies ever in the world. Uh, he had a fierce rivalry with, with John D. Rockefeller, who controlled the oil industry. And they would often have these fights over, over money, and they would use their influence to basically threaten each other uh, with, with the commerce, whether it be how they would transport their, their goods uh, or whatever it was. They would have this fierce fight over money. And money can certainly do strange things to us. One of the most common fights among married couples is in the financial area. Many people have led themselves into personal and legal corruption because of the love of money uh, and having more and more of it. There have been families that have been ruined because one or more members of the family have chased the almighty dollar. Countless more have been ruined by taking out gobs of loans without the, uh, the ability to pay back those loans. It is really no wonder why uh, Paul wrote just a few verses before in chapter 6, verse 10, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So for what it's worth, uh, Andrew Carnegie ended up coming to his senses in his mid-30s. When he was 33, he wrote a resolution or a note to self, if you will. Now, as you, as you read this, this is, this is his word, so the grammar isn't great and the writing isn't great, but this is what he, he wrote. Man must have an idol. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than worship of money. 
Whatever I engage in, I must push in ornately. Uh, therefore, should I be careful to choose that life, which will be more elevating in its character? To continue much longer overwhelmed by business cares and with most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me, be, uh, degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign business at 35, but during the ensuing years I wish to spend the afternoons in securing instruction and in reading systematically. So after he resigned, and he, and he did hold to that, that, uh, that resolution, he became one of the most prolific philanthropists in history. Uh, his goal, which he did not achieve when he died, was to give away all of his wealth. Uh, but he came very, very close. And Carnegie was one of the richest men that lived during his time. He understood what few of us do. That whether you have a lot of money or whether you have a little bit of it, Money changes us. It changes who we are, and usually not for the better. Now, in verse 17 here, Paul some recognizes that there are some Christians who uh, have uh, indeed come into healthy sums of money, and he doesn't condemn wealth. He doesn't say that wealth is a bad thing. He rather instructs Timothy to help those who are wealthy in his congregation to come to a more godly understanding and practice of how to deal with wealth. Let's look in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, uh, encourage them not to be arrogant. Now this is a, a quite a stunning uh, little passage here because it shows the extent by which the gospel has reached throughout the world. And this is probably only about 30 years or so since the ascension of, of Christ. And here it has reached the city of Ephesus, which is probably the second largest uh, city in that region next to Alexandria at that, that point. And uh, this is where Timothy was at. And it not only reached uh, the poor, but also the rich. So it has, it has accessed all socioeconomic levels. And it, one very important thing about the gospel that this shows is that it puts all of us on equal footing. It doesn't matter if you're rich. It doesn't matter if you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're black or if you're white. It doesn't matter if you're uh, male or female, if you're young or old. We are all on the same spiritual position. In and of ourselves, we are sinners who are separated from God. And it is only in his grace and in his mercy through the shed blood of Jesus that we are brought into a right relationship with him. If you are rich, you can't buy your way in with God. If you're a nice person, you can't earn your way in with God. If you have a nice spiritual pedigree, you're not going to get in with God we are all unable, we are all unworthy, and all welcomed only by his grace through the vehicle of faith. But even in light of that, many wealthy Christians still default into this worldly mindset that they are better than other people simply because their house is bigger, they have better toys, and a larger bank account. And here, uh, Paul wants Timothy to be straight with them. He says, don't be arrogant. Don't take it to heart. 
This means that they have to humble themselves and not look down on others. They must resist the, the, the temptation that, that wealth often brings, and that is to, to trust in wealth as a functional savior. Look at, again at verse 17. Instruct those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth. Now, the thing is, is that you don't have to be filthy rich in order to struggle with this. This is something that every single one of us uh, struggles with in one way or another. We're tempted uh, to trust in our wealth, whether it be through our insurance policies. Well, if something happens to me, I'm going to be fine because I have this, this great insurance policy with a low deductible and everything is going to be okay in that, that area. Some of us trust in our, uh, in our, our retirement, our pension accounts. That when that day comes, that we need to say goodbye to our career, that we're going to be able to be sustained. Some of us are trusting in the affluence of our culture and our country when it comes to things like Social Security or Medicare, welfare, public assistance, things that our tax money that we, that we see as that we have invested in will have a high return. So these things are, are things that we put our, our trust and our hope in, but wealth is so fickle, and it's so insecure. The market could cave at any time. Now, is it just me, or does inflation seem like it's going up a little bit? It can go skyrocketing without even a warning. Uh, depending on your level of risk of your mutual fund or certain 401k uh, plans, those investments, by the end of the week, could have your whole retirement in jeopardy. There have been rumblings for decades now about the long-term sustainability of Social Security. If you are diagnosed with a terminal illness, your wealth might delay death for a little bit. But your wealth will not buy you out of death. The trust in wealth is not only unstable, it's foolish. So Paul instructs Timothy to teach the wealthy, instruct those who are rich not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. So understand here, that Paul is not saying that it is bad or that it is wrong to be rich. Uh, God in his providence has given wealth to some endowed with a fortune. But the question is, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to take that dollar and how are you going to use it? Are you going to use it as a functional savior to to hope in it, or are you going to use it to hope in God as a means to bring him glory and honor? A truly Christian worldview recognizes that God owns everything. The psalmist says this, uh, he quotes God in Psalm 50, where God says, Every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and everything in it is mine. In other words, stop trusting in these things as if they're going to deliver you, as if they're yours to begin with. They're all God's. 
So trust in the one who owns them all, the Lord. And second, we also need to deposit true wealth. We need to deposit true wealth. Uh, if you want to have a consistently growing account, uh, you need to make sure that you're depositing more than you're withdrawing. I mean, that, that's, that's just simple math. Uh, the same is true spiritually. If you want to grow in spiritual wealth of the grace and, of God and spiritual fruit, uh, you need to deposit not cash in a bank somewhere, but faith into the bank of God. Meet, we, meet me in verse 18. Instruct them, that being the rich, to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. So two things that we actually have to quantify here uh, in order to get at what Paul is saying. The first is, is that we need to put this into perspective. Paul is not saying or giving us a recipe for how to get in with God in his favor. He is not giving us a formula by which God would see us and recognize us and then accept us. Again, we are all on equal footing here. There's nothing that you can do. There is no amount of goodness. There's no amount of looks or no amount of size of bank accounts by which God looks at you and says, wow, that's the guy that right there that I want in with me. Rather, we're saved redeemed and restored by the grace of God. So God pours out his favor on us simply because he wants to. And he compels us to believe and trust in his name. So when Paul gives this instruction here, it isn't the method that gets them on Jesus's team. It is meant to be the logical response by which we respond to what God has given to us in the gospel. Second, notice the, the transactional nature here. Uh, if you were to go to uh, Spire or if you were to go to Minco or Neighborhood National or, or, or any of these, these banks and you make a deposit, you're putting money into an account that is yours to keep until you make a withdrawal from that account. Maybe you'll even earn some interest. But in verse 18, it doesn't seem that easy. On, on, in fact, on the surface here, it seems like you're only spending and not depositing. But it's just the, this is the glorious backwards nature of the, of the gospel. How do you make a spiritual deposit? By giving yourself away. Instead of hoarding wealth, we should be giving ourselves up for the good of others and for the glory of God. The wealth that we have in this life is in service to our Lord and to others. We are to be intentional about bringing glory to God through our actions, through our words, and through the way that we think about others. And though this seems to be an expenditure, verse 19 tells us that it's actually the most high-yielding account that we can have. Look what verse 19 says. By doing good, uh, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of what is truly life. So Paul is clearly telling us something here that is absolutely counterintuitive that we gain by giving up. We get 
by giving. That is, is that when we give our lives over for the glory of God and the sake of the world to know him, we are making deposits that are going to yield high dividends in heaven. And not only that, but when we who are truly wealthy in Christ, that is, and we give ourselves up in this way, we learn what real life and real purpose is all about. Having worldly life can, uh, worldly wealth can be exciting and it, it can give you a sense of, of true life. Uh, having a cabin, uh, uh, weekends at the lake are, are great, but they can harden you to the reality of true life. Buying a snowmobile is great to go and have a weekend with the boys uh, up in Michigan or, or, or whatever it is, but and it might make a really fun line on your obituary one day, but it can replace your sense of identity from who we are in the Lord to an identity based in recreation. We can work countless hours chasing that dollar and it will only leave you hollow and wanting more. Trust me when I say it will never be enough. You will always want more and more and more. And the only way out of this constant striving for things that will ultimately not satisfy and that will wear out until the next best thing, the only way out of that cycle is to find what is truly life. And what Paul says here, it is to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous. In other words, give yourself over to whatever it is that the Lord is calling you to do. Give yourself over to what your calling is that he is giving to you right now. And instead of, uh, well, Paul is telling us to lose uh, our sense of purpose for our own good and our own glory and to gain the purpose that you were created for, which is to live for the glory of God. And that can send shockwaves through your life if you're not used to that sort of belief. This verse seems to be a derivative of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6. We need it to, and we need to take, to take it to heart. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we need to deposit into true accounts, but then we also finally need to guard, guard the true account. The, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which is the FDIC, was established in 1933 in response to the Great Depression. Uh, it was a way that the federal government wanted to protect deposit holders that put money into the banks uh, from losing their deposits in case there was another mass run on the banks as there was in 1929. Uh, it's a way that customers can have confidence uh, that the, the bank in which they deposited their money, uh, that it's secure and that it's, that it's guarded in a sense. Now that's federally with insurance, but I can think of a time back, well, I wasn't alive obviously, but in, in 1876, when there was a guarding of a deposit that was a little more radical, Jesse James and his gang decided to come to Northfield to rob a bank. 
And as soon as Jesse James and his gang got into the bank, they asked for all the money, which the teller lied to him and said, no, it's all locked up. We can't get it. Town, uh, people in the town realized what was going on, that the bank was being held. So they had a call out to the city. Guys, get your guns. The bank is being robbed. Our money is about to be taken. All the men in the town came and swarmed the bank. Jesse James, this was like his last big hurrah with his gang. Three of his gang members were killed. He went on the run and was, was later uh, uh, killed for other things. But here these guys literally took it into their hands to guard the deposit that they had put into uh, the bank. In Christ, we've been given a huge inheritance, a deposit that is kept for us. In fact, the Apostle Peter puts it this way in, in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. So in a sense, Peter is saying that we have this, this spiritual bank account in heaven, and it's being guarded by God's power through our faith. This is ours. It is sure. It is more locked in tight than the FDIC, and it is more protected than the men of Northfield, Minnesota. And Paul now gives a little more detail on what this divine insured future looks like. And the ESV actually translates it a little bit better based on the context. And this is what uh, he writes in verse 20. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. So this isn't something that Timothy can be passive about. It's not that he can just sit back and let this uh, happen. There's an active nature in, in here, and it is something that he, and it is something that you must do as well. We must guard the gospel that's given to us, and that we have placed our hope and our trust in. How are we to do this? Well, Paul gives us a couple reasons. He says, first, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Now remember, the occasion why Paul wrote this letter in the first place was to encourage Timothy that as he is nursing the church of Ephesus back to health because there were false teachers that had risen to the ranks of Sunday school teachers and preachers within these uh, home churches that were teaching false doctrine and leading people into hell with their doctrine. Look back with me all the way back in chapter 1, uh, verses 3 through 4. He says, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. They promote empty speculations rather than God's plan, which operates by faith. So evidently, uh, there's these people that rose to the ranks of teachers uh, in the church that they were claiming the secret knowledge about Old Testament figures that were nothing but a bunch of gibberish. 
made up stories. It's just a crackle in the microphone. That's all that they were, uh, they were preaching. It's babble. It's contradictory. It falls right into what he wrote in chapter 6, verses 3 through 5, when, when he said, if anyone teaches a false doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy and quarreling and slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way of material gain. Now this was happening roughly in the 60s. Not the 1960s, but the 60s. And here we are, uh, almost 2,000 years past, and we have no lack of false doctrine that is still trying to drive us away from what is the truth of the gospel. Verse 21 here says, By professing it, some have departed from the faith. So what are we to do based on what we've learned throughout this entire letter? We must guard the deposit that is entrusted to us. We must take hold of what Jude wrote when he said that we are to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. We, uh, we chiefly and most importantly need to guard it in our own hearts and then it needs to work out in our homes and in our church and in our community. Perhaps the biggest question that you and I need to wrestle with today is whether or not this is worth it for you is whether or not this is an investment that is worth making. In Christ Jesus, we've been given an inheritance. We've been given a deposit. We've been given a fortune ready to be revealed to us on the last day. But as soon as we dismiss here in just a couple minutes, you are going to be walking into a world with a lot of power to draw out those hidden idols that are deep within your heart that you may not even know that are there that you will joyfully give your heart over to. You'll sidestep the gospel and it'll just be one of those basic accounts that we just throw onto our lives. The church has and will have threats that compromise the truth of Scripture and there will be attempts to win the hearts and minds of you and your children to abandon the faith for a false gospel. And it will often happen in the name of Christianity. So we need to be careful and put ourselves on guard. And you need to ask yourself whether or not contending for the gospel once delivered to the saints and, contend, and contending for the supremacy of Christ in your heart and in your mind and in your soul is worth it. And Paul is telling us it is. We have people who have gone before us from this very church that are in glory right now. That if they could come down here and tell us that it's worth it, they will say it is worth it. Put it in those accounts now and don't look back. If you are here today and you're putting, God, you're putting deposits into a traditional account, you're just getting by with the status quo. 
and you just don't think much about the implications of your faith and your beliefs, if Christ is just another thing tagged onto your life, if that's you, you're not going to get much of a return for it. But when you invest in your spiritual resources by giving up yourself for the good of others and the glory of God you are depositing into a high-yielding spiritual account that one day will have a return rate of joy that you can't even possibly fathom right now. So I plead with you to trust in true security of Jesus, to deposit true wealth of Jesus, and to guard the true account of the gospel of Jesus. And as Paul closes out his letters, his letter here, I would close it in the same way. Grace be with you. Let's pray. You have been listening to a message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. You are welcome to pass this message along to others, but please don't charge for it or alter it in any way without written permission from Emmanuel Baptist Church. This message has been made available by the generous supporters of Emmanuel Baptist Church. For additional information about how you can partner with Emmanuel, please visit us at www.emmanuelmora.com. There you will find more free messages and links to ministry opportunities to help you grow in your faith. If you are watching on YouTube, please click the subscribe button to always receive the latest messages. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Baptist Church, Mora, Minnesota. Knowing Christ and making Him known.